So as Rich says, we, we're starting a new series. We actually wanted to start this last year. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot involved in this series. We're going to be looking at a whole bunch of things. The overarching narrative, they call it the meta-narrative of the Bible. The Bible is a story. Um, and it's a bunch of scattered data, and I'm going to get into all of those details. And we're going to look at the story from, in a sense, start to where we are now in, on Project Planet Earth. And then we're going to look at what, is, what does the story tell us about what future we can expect. And we're going to look at things like discipleship again. We're going to revisit that. And we're going to go through this whole process. So this series will probably take us up to at least August. At least. And we're going to delve deep into some of the stuff. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to open up your hearts so that your minds will be receptive to some of the stuff that we're going to start to introduce. Because some of the stuff that, was, that I was introduced to some years ago, I was like, no, this is heresy. What are you talking about? I've never heard this before. And so I will throw a couple of things out. How many angels fell? How many angels fell with uh, Satan? Okay, I challenge you to go find that in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And I will challenge you on a number of things that through tradition and through presumption, we've just taken on because our parents or somebody in the church told us this. And that there are things within the Bible that we just skip over that we don't actually look at because they're just too difficult to understand. And I'm hoping, not that we're any great shakes, but that other men and women have gone before us who have actually uncovered all of these things, these truths. And remember, you know, God is the God of mystery, but it actually God calls out kings and queens to go and search out those mysteries. And so hopefully we can inspire you that by the end of the series, you know that God loves you more than you ever thought possible. That actually, yes, the story of Jesus and, and God coming to Project Planet Earth is amazing, but actually it's even better than that. Because there is a context in which we find the story. And that's what I'm going to be speaking on this morning, introducing this particular series on the context of the Bible and what the biblical writers were actually trying to speak to us. And we're going to go through some of those details. So over the last probably two centuries, most of the biblical studies that have been done, and you can look at Erickson, you can look at Grudem, you can look at all of those kind of guys, they have done systematic theology. Now systematic theology, what it does is it takes a topic. Let's take sin or maybe man or God. And what it does is it goes and looks at the whole Bible and it pulls out all of those mentions of sin. And then what it does is it puts it together and it develops a doctrine, a dogma, around which the church then lives out. And it's great. I've got no problems with that. The only problem that I do have with it is that often what we do now is we paint everything with the same brush. And then we go to a text and we've taken an overall thing and we've put it into, or we've taken all of these things, come to a conclusion. And now we take that conclusion and we apply it to every single context in the Bible which you actually can't do. And it often lands up with incorrect conclusions in terms of particular texts that we read. And then we as the church start to live those out in a way that certainly isn't the way God intended us to. There's another way in which we can study the Bible, and it's called biblical theology, which looks at the story, the narrative, and it starts to unpack it as one story of a loving God who wants a family, a human family. And we're going to start to unpack that this morning, I've often had these questions. What are we doing on earth? I don't know if, if, certainly I've asked that question. God, what am I doing on Project Planet Earth? What is, what is your plan for me? I don't understand why we're here. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought, like, why? I'm, I'm in this body, and sure, I'd, I'd love to be a couple of feet taller, and, you know, those kind of things. And, 
maybe have a bit more curly hair or, you know, but, but, but God, how did I arrive? Why, what is this all about? Am I the only one? Thing is, though, what does God want ultimately? Because if we know what God wants in a simplistic form, we can then start to live out our lives in a way that honors him. And actually, what the simple answer is, God wants you. And God wants me. God wants us. And we're going to show how all of this kind of fits together. So what is the whole Bible story really all about? Because it's important for us to understand is that there's a God of love who wants to live with us for eternity. But then he also wants us to tell others who are made in a similar image that we are to him about those two truths, that he is a God of love and that he wants us to live with him forever. Now, these are simple truths. The thing is, is though, is that this whole story gives us context into how much he loves us. But you know what? This whole story is full of tragedy. And it's also this whole thing of the fact that God almost changed his mind about having made us, but he didn't. And we're going to go through this process as to what actually happened and why it's so important for us to understand that, to know that right now today, how do I live out my life based on what he purposed back then and where we are right now and what he has for us for the future. We're going to look at what the gospel is. We just sang that song. I want to believe in the simple gospel. But if I asked you, I wonder how many of you could stand up here and, and give some form of understanding of what the gospel is. I think very few. And what I'm, we are hoping to do is to provide a foundation that helps us in our own discipleship under God, but then also to tell others to bring them into a place of discipleship by Jesus. So, we need to understand that the Bible was written, and the readers of the Bible at that time, and those letters that were written and those manuscripts were to people who lived at that time. And I thought, oh, gee, Gary, that's, that's amazing. Great insight there. But the thing is, is that we need to perceive and understand the way that they were writing. There's a meaning that would have been put into place. When you write a letter to somebody, you know what you mean and what you are trying to communicate. But if somebody misunderstands what you are trying to communicate, you can land up with the wrong meaning of what was trying to be communicated. The thing is, though, is that often this makes us feel uncomfortable because when we start to read some of these crazy texts, you go, uh, excuse me, how does this work? But there's an intended meaning by the writers in that particular context. And it's totally different from our modern context in which we live in. So we need to go back there to gain understanding of what those texts are so that we can understand what that means for us to live out right now in our context. So what does that mean? What does reading the Bible in context mean? Well, here's a lady, Amy Swanson. And she says, it is reading the Bible as a complete cohesive piece that tells a complete story. It looks like uncompromised truth sticking to the original author's intended meanings. It looks like reading with integrity by considering the historical and literary limit implications of any given passage. And it looks like using the Bible in context to understand the Bible. A whole bunch of words to basically say that we need to know why the Bible was written, when it was written, and what the intended meaning of those writers were to understand fully what these particular texts mean. So, if we're going to go and read the Bible, we need to know that these were first century Jews. These were ancient Israelites who were penning these particular things, especially in the Old Testament. And we need to understand what they were all on about. So, 
when we look at this and we understand that the context of all of this is through their eyes, the way that they were intending to mean, we need to get into their minds, into their worldview, and understand what they were all about. And believe it or not, they lived with a very supernatural view of the unseen realm. Way more than we do. We live, as C.S. Lewis calls us, as chronological snobs. We think the people back there weren't that bright. But maybe they were brighter than us because actually we have genes that are way kind of disseminated and expressed. So maybe we're less bright than they were. But we think we're better than because we live in the modern era. These were very bright men and women, very intellectual men and women. And the problem is, is that we need to shed the filters that we have because we live in a context. We have shades on in terms of our context, and we read these things as if it was being read, written to us, which on one level, yes, that's true. But in order for us to understand it, we need to put their lenses on, their worldview. Because what we've got, we've got these mixed creedal statements, denominational statements, and rationalism of our modern understanding, and that's how we interpret the Bible. Oh, that's not what God meant. No, no, that's, that is what God meant. Let's actually unpack it. Let's go into it, and let's try and understand it. So, let me ask you this question again. Do you, well, not again, but I've asked you about the, 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 the demons, the angels that fell with Satan, really showing you that already what we've learned from our past people, from the people that have been teaching us is not actually correct. Let's, let me ask you this question. Does the Bible speak of other created spiritual beings that are not angels? Because most people would say no. Most people would say it's God and the angels and then it's us. Well, we're going to show and demonstrate throughout the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And if you want to go and read up on this, there's a guy called Michael Heiser. <clears throat> and he's a, a scholar who has pulled together. This is not his own original thought. He's pulled together all the information over the centuries. And he's put it together. And it's an unseen realm book that he has written which a lot of what we are speaking about will be based on that. And he's also written a little book called What Does God Want? Again, we're using that as the overarching structure on which to communicate the series to you. What? We have copies here, but we can also send you the PDF. We've got uh, permission to do that from him directly. Would ask, he was, he's actually in hospital right now with pancreatic cancer, and it's not looking good. Um, and so, Father, I just want to stop right now. And just pray for Michael. Because even though we don't know him personally, Louise has been studying with him and through him over the last three years and two and a half years. And Lord, I pray that you would send your word to heal him right now where he is. In Jesus' name. Lord, we, we need men and women like him. Lord, who can disseminate and who can distill information and put it in such a simple way that we can understand it and we live out a better life because of it. And so, your Lord, yeah, won't you send your healing power into his hospital room right now. So if there are other created beings, okay, where, what are they? Where? And we're going to get into some of those things. And the problem is, is that this series is going to prove how many filters we've got on. How many, what are the glasses that you've got on? What are you doing and how do you go about it? Because what is a filter? <clears throat> many of you have done some cooking. I guess mostly the ladies in our midst, I don't know, I know there's some great cooks like Ian who are, who are male, but what do you do when you, what? Oh, Derek, where's Derek? There he is. Derek, who 
when you want to you know, filter something, you take something out. If you just want an egg yolk and, or you want the, the egg white, you, you filter that out. Our cars have filters. They filter the impurities, don't they? Even our emails have filters with our junk mail, don't they? We don't want that stuff, so we filter it, and we make sure that when that stuff arrives, it actually goes into a junk mail drawer and so that we can look at it and go, ah, no, this is actually just phishing, spam, get rid of it. So we understand that that's what filters do. But the challenge is, is that when we look at the filters of the Bible, is we develop these artificial filter systems to organize the Bible based on a couple of things. Number one is the English translations of the Bible. Believe it or not, they can't fully express what the original language attempted to express. Whether it's Hebraic or the Hebrew or the Aramaic or whether it's the Greek, which are the three languages used in the original manuscripts. Let me take Greek because that's what I've studied. If you want to know more about the Hebrew, and, and uh, Quentin told, told us some great stuff in our prayer meeting around the stuff, is that from a Greek perspective, the word love, when you read the English translation, it just says, oh, and he loved, and God loved you, and God loves you. What does that word love mean? Because for us, it's, well, I love lemon meringue pie. Is it the same love? Is it an affection? What is that? But the Greek actually has agape love, an unconditional expressive love. There's phileo love, which is a brotherly kind of connection love. There is eros love, which is more kind of sexual orientated. It's so different. So when the Greek kind of expresses that, it's very much more expressive that we understand the context. What about plurals? Well, the Greek is very much a language that shows you know it's speaking to a collective or to a person. When the Bible says you have the mind of Christ, it should actually say, you all have the mind of Christ. Because it is in plural. But we can't actually get that unless we go and we check out what it was really meaning. So you can see the English translations often do not translate the words helpfully. And what really starts to happen is some of these translators don't really understand what they are translating. And I'm going to show you in a moment. And so they'll take things like sons of God and make them angels. And they'll change wording to make it look in a certain way when actually it's not what the original manuscripts actually talk about. And then we lose the context and we lose the meaning and we land up in the wrong setup. The other thing is, is that we do is we, we often gloss over those things we don't understand. So let, let me read you Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the, into the daughters of, of man and they brought children to them. What's Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? They had sex with women and bore children. What were those children like? What's going on here? How many of us have actually gone and studied any of this and what it actually means? And it's not the only place it's mentioned. But it's almost like this little, it's like, you know, one of those uh, subliminal advertising things. When you're watching a movie and the coke comes up quickly and goes away, you go, what? What just happened there? Something's there. But I haven't actually gone, and, oh, I don't understand it, so let me push it away. And then actually Peter picks it up in First Peter when he's talking about baptism and he's talking about uh, Jesus going down and preaching to the captive. We all think those are Christians. They're not. We're going to talk all about those things. And I'm going to say to you, if you think, hey, Gary, you guys are in heresy, let's go study together. Let's have conversation. I'm hoping that at the end of the series you have an insatiable appetite for the Bible, that you want to know more and more about who God is because the more you know about him, the more you know how much he loves you and the extent to which he has gone to save us.
So that's what we do. We exclude these difficult texts like this. Oh, Genesis 6, let's put it aside. There are some crazy texts out there where you go, what is God talking about? What are the writers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things mean? They're unimportant because it's only, it's only a verse. But actually, this verse speaks into multiple verses. The other thing we do is we, we, look at, we, we presume on things, like the, the third of the angels. Well, somebody told me that somewhere. So a third of the angels fell. And sure, you can look at Revelation, and there's a text there that kind of indicates that, but it's not even speaking into that if you look at the context. So we have these presumptions and these traditions, and we put on these lenses, these filters, and we filter out, and that's all we want is this little piece. And so the problem is, is that the Bible is made up of scattered data. It's not this perfect history like a video of, of, of all time, you know, where Holy Spirit was kind of videoing history and shows us every little aspect of it. Not everybody's life and every aspect of history is in the Bible, but there are important things that pull us into that so that we go and study and we go and see what God is actually saying in those particular contexts. It's exciting. And I'm hoping that I inspire you to go and read up on these things. All right. So we need to recover the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers because by doing that, we gain their perspective and we see the pieces, all of these little pieces in the wider context of what God is trying to communicate to us through his word. Here's the thing, is that the Bible is more about a mosaic or, and jigsaw puzzle than it is about anything else. It's kind of like this theological, literal mosaic or literary mosaic. If you look on the, what's well, your side, your left, those little mosaics, if you had those little blue mosaics and that's all you saw was one or two or three or even a, a handful, it means nothing. But when you step back, well, you see the big picture. That's a pretty cool picture. Now, the picture doesn't exist without the one mosaic. If you take those mosaics out, the more you take out, the less you can actually see. And so as the picture relies on the little mosaics. But at the same time, the little mosaics rely and are part of a bigger picture that they form. So they, they both end. Now here was a magnificent puzzle that I did over, over Christmas. I did this puzzle once with uh, Karen Lynch while we were away over a, a December break. And I searched for it and I found it. And I said, babe, that's what I want for Christmas. And so one of the things that I did get time out to do was this puzzle. It is a magnificent puzzle about pirates. You can see there's so much information. And I love doing it because it, as you get, and what I did was I, I kind of blew up the one section, which you can see if you look over there, that's the section that I've blown up. And you start to see all the different aspects of, of uh, all the pirates and the well-known pirates that are all up here. They, they give you a whole thing. They tell you about how the guns work and all the different guns. And on this side, you can't see, but all the different swords. And it was an amazing jigsaw puzzle to do, 2,000-piece puzzle. Love doing it. Yeah. And then my, what my daughters do is they hide one piece. And when I finish, and she forgot to tell me, and I was panicking, this brand new puzzle. And meanwhile, she had it because she wanted to put the last one in. But to her credit, she gave me the opportunity to put the last piece in. But the point is, is again, when you look at one piece, it means nothing. Or it can. I mean, if you picked it up, you could see, okay, this looks like a pirate. But what is the bigger context to this, this jigsaw puzzle? And that's what God and that's what the Bible is all about. 
is that we need to understand these things because if we understand that it's a theological, literary, mosaic, stroke, jigsaw puzzle, we need to get as much pieces together so we can see a better picture in context of what we are talking about. Otherwise, we land up having wrong conclusions at the end of reading texts. Now, this is going to be controversial. When I, from the time I probably got saved when I was 12 years old, uh, 1981, Went to Rama Bible Church when it was still in um, uh, Jansmats. I, I wasn't there for the right motives. I was there for a young lady. Um, God uses those things, trust me. And uh, got radically saved speaking in tongues within a month. And my life changed. So God even uses those things. The point that I'm trying to make, though, is that when I obviously then started to study the Word and started to understand some more stuff, and then, like, my mom and dad, my mom in particular is from a Catholic background and uh, saw that this Catholic Bible had apocryphal writings, and I was like, Skanda, that's evil. Why are they doing that? Um, now, right up front, let me say that those apocryphal writings and other historical documents are not Scripture. Let me say that again so that people don't get it wrong. They are not Scripture. But isn't it hypocritical of us that what we do is we go read other historical documents even now, we'll go read Luther and Augustine and Calvin, who had their own filters, who didn't even live at those, in those, context, those times in the context, and yet we'll take their word for it, and we'll put their glasses on to see what the Bible is saying. Huh? Whereas these apocryphal writings were all around those particular times. Huh. So maybe we should be reading them to get context, to get more historical data. So you take the book of Enoch, for example, which actually gives us so much more information into who the Nephilim are and who the watchers are and all of these things and why God sent the flood. There's a really interesting background story to that. No, no, Gary. Those are evil books and they're not part of the canon. No, they're not. And they're not scripture. Let me say that again. But they give us historical context. They give us insight into what the Bible is saying so that we can then understand what really has happened. And at the end of it, we realize how much more God has done for us than we ever thought. Everybody has their own filters, including Luther and Calvin. Do you know that they were cessationists? What is that? They weren't cessational. <laughs> they ceased to believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were available to us. And they were only available to the apostles. And when all the apostles died, it stopped. Come on. Let's, let's, let's talk about that one. But we will believe Calvin and Luther and all other stuff, won't we? Imperfect men, brilliant men. I don't want to pull them down. But actually, they through their own filters. And why? Because Calvin lost his sister. Prayed for her. She got sick. Prayed for her. She died. Ah, oh, healing doesn't work. No, no, bro. You can't allow your experience to determine what the Bible says. Okay. What are these obstacles to removing these filters? Because we have. Well, the first one is... We're trained to look at the history of Christianity as the context of the Bible. I've already touched on some of it already. We're also, what we do is we're desensitized to the theological importance of the unseen realm. Through the whole process of modernism and postmodernism and now whatever post-postmodernism post we're in, the point is, is that we are desensitized to the unseen realm and the supernatural which is where the Bible was actually written into. We assume certain things in the Bible to be kind of really weird, 
or peripheral, so they're not important, when actually sometimes they really are. So let's look at this first one. Let's look at this thing of the fact that we've been trained to think that the history of the church actually is the context of the Bible. Well, Michael Hassa says the following. We shouldn't be looking at the history of the church like this. It's not about Christian history. It's not about Augustine or any other church father or the Catholic church or rabbinic movements, and that's got nothing to do with your digestive system. And uh, the Reformation or the Puritans or anything like that, denominational preferences, whether you're a Baptist or your parents are Anglican or, you know, I mean, we could keep going, Methodists or whatever, Presbyterian. Those, some of those things are brilliant and they're creeds, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. But unfortunately, what we do is we use those things and we start to live them out when actually they are not biblical. They're just some good things. So what do we do? Well, we need to get the context of the biblical writers. Every other context is alien to the context in which they wrote it. Now, I'm not saying we ignore all of these things. We, we don't ignore it. These are brilliant men and women who helped us understand certain things. I'm not totally against denominations. Um, we're not in a denomination. We've chosen not to be for various reasons. But they do amazing work. They believe in Jesus. They are part of the kingdom. They are Christian brothers and sisters. So let's not, we're not talking about those things. What we're saying is we cannot take those things as primary. We need to take the Bible and its context as primary. And that's why we need to understand the proper perspective and priority that those people and those things and those historical moments have. And not elevate them to the preeminent thing where we get our information from. When somebody tells me they're a Calvinist, I say, oh, wow. So you take your leaning from a man. I'm a Christian. I want to be Christ-like. I want to be the follower of Jesus, not Calvin. As Calvin is brilliant and he's got some amazing stuff. He was imperfect and has some unhelpful things. So does Augustine, who also, by the way, was a sensationalist. So if you're going to follow their writings, be aware that you've got no spiritual gifts to actually express while you're here on Project Planet Earth. I don't know if that's necessarily true. So what happens is these creeds help us. These people help us. These things help us to still difficult theological information for us to be able to understand what the Bible is about. We don't ignore them. They are not inspired texts. Let me say that again. They are not inspired texts. As brilliant as they may be. And the thing is, is that all of the texts that were written were by, yes, ancient Far Eastern Mediterranean men. Very different from South Africa. Josie. With the taxis. With load shedding. Very different. And second millennial all the way to the first century. Very different context. So in order for us to fully understand what these biblical writers were on about, we need to tap into their worldview. We need their mosaic, their thinking that shaped their minds so that when we read this text, we fully understand what they're on about. Number two, we've been desensitized. Okay. How have we been? I know this is a busy slide. But we've been desensitized on almost two sides of the spectrum. We've got those Christians... And most Christians, well, a lot of our, uh, us, we say we have a supernatural view. But actually, we live as skeptics. And part of this process is when we live as skeptics, we actually shut ourselves off from the supernatural because it is an unseen realm. It is supernatural. And if we're going, oh, hold on a second, I'm a skeptic, I'm not going to believe that, instead of actually going to investigate it, we shut ourselves off from the unseen realm. And what happens is, is most of the church 
has bowed to the pressure of modernism and rationalization. And so that can't be true. That's not possible. No, you know what? That flood that happened in, in, in Egypt, you know, uh, when, when well, not in Egypt, but when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, you know, it's, it, it wasn't really a flood. But that even makes the miracle more than it, than, it, than it was because now you find the whole Egyptian army drowned in ankle-deep water. But everyone tries to rationalize it because, no, 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 we need proof. We need physical evidence of all of what is going on. And we need to understand these things. Otherwise, we are in a place where we, we, we land up with the wrong things. So what happens is, is these modern understandings and rationalize, we ignore Scripture because the fact is, is we don't understand it. So if I don't understand it, then I'm not going to actually go and find out what it's about. So let's just push it aside and let's carry on, guys. And with this whole thing is it precludes an experience of the unseen world because we've shut it off. Now you've got the other side. The other side says, no, no, no. We actually want to go and experience this. The first side says, no, you know these guys, these charismatic crazies? We're we, we going to actually, we don't like those. We, we, these guys here are, are a bit crazy, so that's why we've landed up there. But the charismatic guys are going, no, let's experience God. But the problem is, is they experience him in such a way that they actually don't have a substantial understanding of what the scriptures are saying, and so they land up with distortions of what God is actually trying to do. So both are wrong. Where do we, and I don't want to call the word balance, where do we land up in terms of the stuff? Because the charismatics limit their experience of the book of Acts. Speaking in tongues and walking around drunk and laughing. That cannot be the only supernatural unseen realm experience that God has got for us. Seriously. If it is, then Christianity is rather boring. So both of these issues, their problem is founded in the fact that they haven't gone to the fact of this. They haven't framed it with the ancient worldview of the biblical writers. And like I've said, what that does is it either consigns this whole thing or this invisible realm to just simply the sidelines of theology on this side, or like I've said, it lands up with the distortions and the lack of understanding on this side. So hopefully throughout the series, we are going to look at that. So what we need and what we must do is reconsider our selective supernaturalism. Because that's what we are as a modern church to recover the biblical theology of the unseen world and the unseen realm. So thirdly, we assume that certain things in the Bible are too weird or peripheral to be important. Okay? So many pastors, they read a text like 1 Peter, and they go, whoops, I don't understand this. We're just going to gloss over it. Let's just move on because it's bizarre, and let's make it ordinary and comfortable for the people who are going to hear it and interpret it. I've seen that. I've done it. I I didn't understand 1 Peter 3. We were preaching through it probably about 10 years ago. And I was like, what is this? Like Jesus going down and preaching to the captives and the undead and the, I don't know what this is. And I went and I spoke to a theologian and he said, I don't know either. I think it's this. I think it's that, but I'm not sure. And so what we do is we, oh, let's just gloss over it. Like I don't know what this means. But if we put it into context, we start to understand. And isn't that ironic that we think like that? Because we believe in a monotheistic Trinitarian God <laughs> who came to Project Planet Earth through a virgin birth. We've got a talking snake in chapter 3. We'll talk about that. Anyway, the point is, is we are somewhat hypocritical, aren't we? So the context of all of this, how do we understand this? Because if I say to you, and I said this in the prayer meeting, I live near Bryanston in a penthouse overlooking a golf course. 
and I drive a Mercedes Benz, what is your perception of who I am? I've got some bucks. I'm quite important. But if I told you that actually I lived in a one-bedroom apartment overlooking the Adventure Golf at Brightwater Commons, and I drove a 1970 Mercedes, what would be your perceptions of me then? You see, see the difference? That's why it's so important to understand context. So when we look at the context of this family related, because if God wants us and he wants a family, then we need to look at what, what is the language that's happening in the Bible here. And we, what we need to do is we actually need to go back before the earth was created. And when we go back there, what we see that God was not alone. And he did not make us because he was lonely. What he did was he had created other intelligent beings. And we're going to go into this. We're going to unpack this in a, in a bigger way. And they were called the sons of God, not angels. Angels are something separate, which we'll get into. We've called them angels. Well, Gary, where? Well, I guarantee, well if you've got a Bible on you, go, open up an NIV to this particular text. Job 38, 4 to 7. And I guarantee you that they've got angels here. And yet the word is Elohim. Huh? But Elohim is the same word for God. Yeah. But they're the sons of God. What, what is that? Aren't we the sons and daughters of God? But this is before the creation of the time. Because look at the text. Where were you? I, I love this text because you can imagine Job speaking to God and trying to tell God off. And he's going, listen, my friend. It's like your two-year-old trying to tell you how to do accounting. You know, it's like, seriously? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, you little pipsqueak. Okay, I'm just adding my own paraphrase. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out a line upon it? On which were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who are these sons of God? They're not angels. I'm hopefully I'm getting some theological juices starting to flow and going, okay, Gary, you're scaring me now. You're talking about stuff I don't know about. Yes. We need context. We need understanding. So when we look at this, what we understand with the whole Hebrew word sons can better be defined as children in the context of our modern understanding. It's talking about sons and daughters. And so it implies family. And it also this God had a heavenly family that he fathered before the creation of this earth. Huh. Okay, now Gary, you're scaring me. Good. Go research it for yourself. Go read up on it. Genesis 1.26, God created us in his image and in his likeness. So if God wanted a human family, the story of God begins in Genesis as God is creator. God acted intentionally, purposefully to actually bring us into this place. He lacked nothing. He was not lonely. He created something to enjoy it. He created us to enjoy us and in return for us to enjoy him. Now there's an amazing creed, isn't it? So when we look at this and we look at what the Bible refers to, refers to God as Father. Even Jesus himself says, this is how I want you to pray. Our Father. Not our God, but our Father. God wants a family. And in all of this, there's family language that describes throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And we are created in the image of God our Creator. But what does that mean? Well, I think we think of images as a noun. I'm, 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 I'm the image of God. Look. Look at me. But actually, it's a verb. We are images of God. We are representations of God. 
We are to represent him here on Project Planet Earth. And it's important for us to understand that because when we look at that text, he created us in his own image. And notice he created us male and female. That'll speak into our sexuality course next month, but also speak into how the church has misrepresented women so often as we look at the patriarchal system that comes in from Abraham. We're going to look at that at some point in our lives. And it tells us to be fruitful in number, and it tells us to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, and all of those good things. So when we look at this and we understand that we are images of God, what's important for us to understand is that that we should be the most secure people on Project Planet Earth. Because we know that God created us for a purpose. And we have a profound understanding of our identity of not only who we are, but whose we are. Because if we are, go through all of this thing, is this gives us purpose. Every single one of you has a role to play on Project Planet Earth. Every single one of you has a role to play in somebody else's life, which is a spiritual calling. Every single one of you represents your God, the God, our Father, to the people around you where you move and have your being. And when we understand that, then we know that there's all the tasks that honor God and honor the fellow images are the ones which are the spiritual callings God's got for us. That means the role of me as pastor is not superior to any of you. We all have the same role. Whether you're a minister, a priest, a pastor, doesn't make any of us better than or whatever else. We've all got the same role, the same spiritual calling. And how we live out really, really matters. Because either what you do is you bless the other fellow images and you show what God is really like or you curse them by the way that you treat them. What does God want? He wants you and me. What does that mean? He wants a family. He wants co-workers. He wants us to know who we are and how valuable our life really is to him. The thing is, though, is that many of us live lives that don't conform to God's vision for us. And I'm trusting that 2023 is a year we shift that. Why? Why don't we conform to his vision for us? Because something ruined it all. Something came in that caused so much heartache to God that he almost gave up on us, but he didn't. And this is when you're watching a series and it says to be continued. And you go, oh, I've got to wait another week. Close your eyes, please. Father God, you are amazing. And Lord, we have such a small view and limited view on who you are because we, we're happy just to come to church once a month, I mean, well, once a week, whatever it might be, listen to something said, and then we just appropriate that with our traditions and our presumptions. But Lord, I pray that through this series, Holy Spirit, that you would incite people to have an insatiable appetite for your word and the context for, on which your word was, was spoken into so that, Lord, when we read this, we understand that you are the only uncreated being, the monotheistic God, the one and only God to whom we love and we worship. And yet you are three in one. We don't understand that, how Jesus, you Father, and Holy Spirit are one, but you are. 
That's one of the big mysteries that we'll only find out when we cross over into eternity. But Lord, I pray that through the series, people will not get wigged out, but that, Lord, they will go and study it for themselves. And that they would appropriate all the supernatural understandings of what that unseen realm looks like. Because God, that's where we are going to be one day. As spiritual beings, in a sense, fully reunited with our Father in the family of God that you always intended. And so Holy Spirit, be the after speaker. And inspire us to more of who you are. Because how we live out does matter, sometimes in the most small and spectacular ways. Lord, meet us in the mundane this year. Meet us in our routines this year. May we be discipled by you in an unprecedented way in 2023. That, Lord, at the end of 2023, we can look back and we can see and have fallen more in love with you than we were right now on the 15th of January. I ask this in Jesus' name.